I'm in this series uh, called Identity. We are traveling through the New Testament letter of Ephesians. It's not a verse-by-verse per se. It's a topical verse-by-verse. And we've looked, we're looking at who we are, and we've looked at I am adopted in Christ, and I am called. And today we're going to look at I am God's masterpiece. If you want to open up your Bibles or your app, we're going to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to cover verses 1 through 10, but before I get there, let me just share a bit. Uh, I think most of you know, uh, as I've shared off and on throughout the years, that I am a backpacker, which means I like to torment my body by putting a 40-pound pack on and climbing over mountain passes and walking, you know, 20-mile loop trips and stuff like that. And uh, 40 years, this year was 40 years ago that I began backpacking. And so uh, I know some of you have gone with me and still go with me on the trips every year. And uh, we have a really, really good time. Uh, I have been uh, to the top of Mount Whitney twice in my life. I've hiked to the top. I have failed three times, so I'm batting 400. I'm two for five. Uh, once I made it up in a three-day trip, once I made it up in a one-day, 22-mile round trip, 11 up and 11 down. Um, I, am no, I don't have a too much strong desire anymore to climb Mount Whitney, except that I told myself when I turned 70, and I'm, I'm 51 right now, um, when I turn, I'm 63, and when I turn 70, I think I just might go for it again on a one-dayer. Say, Jim, are you crazy? Yeah, I really am crazy. Um, But for sure, I think I'm going to try that again. But here's the thing about Mount Whitney and the geography of California. I I love the high Sierras. This is my favorite. Mount Whitney, when you stand at the top, it's 14,504, 5, 6, 7, 8, or 9. I don't know what, because it's always rising. And uh, that's the way they sell the T-shirts now, as it rises. And you stand up there, and when you get to the top, it's very cool, somewhat cold up there. And you have this panorama, this view of, oh my gosh, Tebow, is it beautiful up there or what? Yeah, Yeah, we've been up there multiple times, and it's just this fantastic, Tony, you were up there, fantastic, fantastic view, and it's just something that you've got to see in life, and, uh, but the thing about California's geography that I love is that it's so diverse, because 80 miles to the west, I'm sorry, to the east of Mount Whitney at 14,000 you know, 508 or whatever, is a place called Death Valley. Somebody clap for Death Valley. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Death Valley is 80 miles. <laughs> it's a, You know, I was really into the message until that clap really threw me. I was really in, uh, 80 miles away from Mount Whitney, and um, it's 282 feet below sea level. And in the summertime, it can get to be about 130 in Death Valley. So you have these extremes just 80 miles away, one of them extremely high and the other one extremely low. And just 80 miles separates the two. Well, the New Testament letter, Paul, the writer of Ephesians, he's going to kick off chapter 2 with such an extreme. He's going to take us in the beginning from the low lows of how a person is before they come to Jesus Christ and their destination. It's the Death Valley part. And the whole world that doesn't know Jesus, they're living in the Death Valley experience. And they're on their way to deeper depths until we intervene. But he's going to take us 
to the transition of to the high, high, the Mount Whitney experience of walking as a new born again believer in Jesus Christ on our way to glory with Jesus. He's going to take us in those extremes, and I want you to pay close attention. But first, let's go to our key verse for the series. If you're just joining us, we have a key verse, sometimes two, but rarely, for the entire series that we read every week. And the New Testament teaches us to pay attention or to the public reading of Scripture. So let's read it publicly all together. I'm going to count to three, then you read the verse. Here we go. One, two, three. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, we have told you every week that workmanship, the idea is we get our word poem from that. And as we have given our lives to Christ and we obey the word of God, God, the spirit of God begins to, through our obedience to the word, he begins to write the new poem, the new lines of our life. Now, I say it weekly that some of us, before we met Christ, even as a follower, we've written down some pretty bad disobedient lines to our life. Have we not through our decision? Anybody agree with that right there? I'll raise both my feet on that one right there because we've done these things. Now, our statement tagline has been, you were, but you are. Say that with me. You were, but you are. Now, you were this, and we'll find the statement in chapter 2, verse 1. You were... And then later on, it's like in verse 19, we won't get there, but it says, you are. So we were this way before we came to Christ, but after we come to Christ and start become a follower, we are this. You see, Paul would also say in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man or woman be in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, all things become new. See, you were, and then you come to Christ, but you, but you are. It changes everything, it changes identity. So, here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to read three verses, then give you three bullet thoughts. Then I'm going to go into three points, read verses in there, and give you thoughts. And then we're going to drive that third point home, because that's where we get to the masterpiece part. But watch the extreme low to high in this chapter. Here we go, three verses, chapter two. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. So you see the culture, and now you see Satan in that statement, that people are walking according to that. When you come to Jesus, now you're walking in the way, the truth, and the, and the life. There's a new according in our life. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3. Among them we... Say, we. we. Look at your neighbor and say, we. we. And now say, we, we. No, don't say that, okay. No. <laughs> Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, in the de- indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, that's where you get the, the idea of sin nature, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Let me give you three quick bullet thoughts here today, but the first one I'm going to come back right away and really expand it. The first bullet thing I want you to write down in there is this. We were dead in sin. That's the first thing Paul says. We were dead in sin. I'm going to really expand that in a moment. The second thought in there is that we lived according to the culture and contrary to Christ. So, in other words, before we come to Christ, 
Uh, can anyone remember walking and just walking in just all of your lustful desires? And lust is not just sex. It's any strong desire for anything. Anybody remember that? Walking in all the bad desires? Any, raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Okay, so you've met that person inside of you before, right? Okay, good. That's the way we were before he came to Christ. And then thirdly, we were by nature children of wrath. Let me tell you what that means because you hear a, a lot, some, bad, some bad stuff out there. That it's just not biblical. But you'll hear people say, oh, people are basically good. Let me tell you, no, they're not. We were children of wrath before we came to Christ. In other words, we were basically bad. We were basically evil. And we were on our way to Death Valley. We are on our way to hell. That's what Paul is saying. He's laying it out very clear. We weren't going to Mount Whitney heaven. We were going to Death Valley hell. And we were basically evil. How many remember when you came to Christ, some of those evil things just changed right away? Anybody remember that? And how many remember that people couldn't even, they didn't even, rec- not physically, but they couldn't recognize the new attitude in you? Anybody remember that? Isn't that a great thing right there? Good. Seven of you are transformed. Praise the Lord. Um, man, God's really doing work here. But, uh, but let me talk about dead and sin. Um, and let me try to explain that. When he, Paul says that we were dead in sin, uh, he's not saying, well, you're basically dirty sinners. He's not just saying that. He's saying, Jim, you were a dead corpse to God. What do you do with a corpse? You bury it, right? Before a person comes to Christ, we are a dead corpse We're dead to God. Now, let me explain it. Every person is a three-part being. Now, some people believe it's two. I I believe it's three. I think 1 Thessalonians 5.23 lays it out. We're body, we're soul, and we're spirit. Now, our born-again spirit, when you're born again, that's the part of you and I, when we receive Christ, where we communicate with God because our spirit is alive. Our soul is um, our mind, our will, which is decision process, mind is intellect, will, decision process, and emotions, it's the feeling. That's in the soul. That's how we communicate and interact with our world. We want to be led by the spirit and not led by the soul. Our body is the housing unit of all these things. Are you following me so far? Say yes if you are. Okay, now watch. So, Adam and Eve, they are alive to God in every way. Spiritual life, they communicate with God. And then, of course, they sin. Now, remember, she tells a serpent, we cannot eat from the fruit because the day we eat, we will what? We'll die. God said we'll die. And the serpent says, come on, God's pulling your leg. Don't listen to him. No, we'll die. Now, they eat the fruit, and did they die? Yes and no. It's a yes and no, because they didn't die physically at that moment. Now, yes, their life would be uh, shortened, but physically, but they died spiritually. See, that spiritual part that could communicate with God, that died. And let me give you the evidence, and I'm going to show you the soul. God comes now looking for them, and, you know, they've sown fig leaves, and they're hiding in trees, and, and they're, they're hiding from... God comes walking in the cool of the garden, and he's looking for them. Adam, where are you? And here's what Adam says. Um, I, I heard you, mind, Right? I was afraid, emotions, so I hid the will, decision-making. Did you just see that? 
Now because his spirit died and he's not in communication with God because you need a born again life spirit to communicate with God. Now he's communicating only through his soul. And if you listen to him, he says, I heard you, I was afraid, and I hid. Now he's interpreting God incorrectly, is he not? Say yes. That is the problem with the entire world out there, and that's why there are so many false religions and things that people say that God is like are incorrect because if they're not born again and operating according to this, they don't have a life spirit. They're operating according to their soul, mind, will, and emotions and they're misinterpreting God and they're getting it all wrong all the time. Any amens on that one? And let me tell you something about being a Christian. If you're not regularly reading this, in church learning about things, you are probably operating for the most part in your soul and you will misinterpret God and Satan will have a field day in your head. Does that make sense? So we were dead to God. We're operating in our soul, our mind, our will, and our emotions. And then here comes Jesus, changes everything. Our spirit comes alive when you're born again, meaning when you invite Christ in your life and follow him, put your faith in him, and now you're alive to God and you can now communicate through the spirit with God. Now, with that said, keep that thought there. Now let's get into today's message. Point one in your notes, and I hope you take notes because go back over it later because it's just good for you and good for me. Um, because it makes me more confident. No, I'm just joking. But uh, Number one, Jesus rescued us. Now watch verse, uh, verse four. Here's the big transition moment because we were dead in our sins. It says in verse four, but God. Say the words, but God. I love that. And I talked about that in our family series about three months ago. But God being rich in mercy. Now mercy means this. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. As all of us are sinners, we are not getting what we deserve if we place our faith in Christ. We're not getting what we deserve. We deserve wrath for our sins. But Jesus said, I'm not going to give you that. I, I made a way out for you. Now, being rich in mercy because of his great love. He doesn't just have love. He has great love. With which he loved us. Say me. That's right. He loves you and he loves me. Now, this is the big transition. Jesus came to rescue us because you and I, every human on the planet, we were dead corpses, dead to God, dead in our sins. It's that moment where the prodigal son comes home and the father, when he's repenting, the fa- it says, but the father. And then he puts the robe on him, the ring on him, the shoes on him, fat and cap. It's but the father. Here's but God, but the father. It's a transition moment. It's the moment that Samson is there and he's ruined his life. And some of us have ruined our lives and Jesus brought us back when we submitted him. But he ruined his life. And there he is blind, pushing a millstone in his, what a dreary, dreary life when he was living as the main man, judge of Israel, delivering the nation. And there he is stuck in in where he's at. And then it says, however, his hair began to grow again. That's the transition moment again. Here comes God to do something about it. Jesus is the transition moment in history where he comes and he dies on the cross, buried three days later, rises from the dead. Any amens on that one? It's the but God moment. Jesus rescues us. Now the question is, Adam and Eve sin hurtling all of us into this death valley experience. When, if I'm you, I'm thinking, when did God put this plan into practice? When did it was announced? Look at Genesis 3.15. Right after um, uh, Adam and Eve sin, Genesis 3.15, please. Oh, it's up there. Okay. It says this. I, and I will put enmity division between you and the woman. You as a serpent, the woman. And between your seed and 
Her seed. Her seed is the first mention of the Messiah that we will know as Jesus Christ. Jesus always lived, but he comes as Jesus at a certain point in history because he is God in the flesh. And he shall bruise you on the head. Jesus would strike a crushing blow to the serpent's head on that cross. And you, the serpent, the devil, you shall bruise him on the heel. A crucified victim's heel is thoroughly, thoroughly bruised. It's the first mention of the coming of the Messiah. It's right after Adam and Eve's sin. Now, if I'm you, I'm thinking this. So why did he take 4,000 years from that moment to finally come to Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, thereabouts? Well, Galatians 4.4 4 says he came in the fullness of time. It means he came at the right time. And that's a whole other message for another time. Don't have time to go there. But he came at the right time. There are reasons for it. Now, look at verse 5 and 6. Now, watch the Death Valley to Mount Whitney transition. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, look, he says it again, we're dead in our transgressions. We're dead to God. Spirit's dead. Um, <clears throat> he made us alive together uh, uh, with Christ. Lost myself. By grace you have been saved. He's going to say that again. Grace is God's favor towards you and I that we do not deserve. Mercy is I'm not getting what I deserve. Grace is God has given me some good stuff and I don't deserve it because I'm a sinner. Isn't that great? Verse 6, and raised us up, oh, transition, Mount Whitney, and raised us up with him and seated us with him. I'm, right now, if you're born again and you're a follower of Christ, spirits of living in you, you have access right now, wherever you are, wherever you're at, anywhere on the planet, you have direct access to the Father through Jesus Christ. Any, anybody like that right there? That's all the time, anytime, because you're born again. In the heavenly places, I'm seated in the heavenlies while I'm seated here, I'm seated there. In Christ Jesus. If I, that's good enough right there for me. Now, so he moves us from death, death valley, all the way to life, Mount Whitney. Are you tracking so far? He rescues us. Now watch this. Uh, point two is Jesus rescued us because of who he is. That's right. Now let's go back to verse four. Watch this. But God, being rich in mercy, he's merciful, because of his great love, he's got great love, with which he loved us. Now, he rescued us because of who he is. He's love, he's mercy, he's grace. Okay, so I told you that um, uh, about three, three weeks ago, I already told you that my son got married. And um, I heard there was a certain gift that was going to be coming. Somebody bought a certain gift. And, and uh, you know, it's a different world now. Remember when you took gifts to the wedding? Now they show up at your door. Um, it's just, just a, th a side thought. Um, but I heard this gift was coming, and it's a really good gift. I mean, really good one. And I thought, I know exactly who, who, who this is from. So I text him, because I go to try, I know him really. Hey, I want to say thank you. You care for my son. You bought him, you know, this really nice gift. And he texts back, and he says, I don't know what you're talking about. I text back, and I said, shut up. Because I know him real well, and I don't, don't write me a card, okay? If I know you well, you tell me, I joke around, I go, shut up. And so, and then we end the conversation. And then it comes to my door because Nathan's on his honeymoon, and so they got to send it to me. And I'm thinking, should I keep it for myself? <laughs> Can't do that. And so it comes to me, so then I get on, I text this person again, I say, hey, you know that gift that you didn't buy? It, it arrived at my house. And then he went on to keep saying, no, I didn't buy it, I didn't do it. Okay, whatever, whatever, whatever. But I knew 
because of what it was, and I knew, I, I knew who it was, because that's just the way they are. They're a very giving person. Now, two weeks ago, I'm, it, it was a long Sunday, and um, coming off about eight, nine days of a lot of tough times, and I don't need to go on that, you know what it is. And uh, I did three services in the morning, and then I did a wedding out in Chino in the late afternoon. I got home at about 8.30, and I'm tired, man. It's been a, it's been a, a rocky eight, nine days. So my wife turns to me and she says, would, would you like me to bake you a pumpkin pie? How many husbands know that you don't even need to, don't even need to ask me that, okay? <laughs> Just do it, yeah. Absolutely, babe, go in there, I, I'm, you know, and bake that pie. And I'm sitting there, and it's about 8.45, she starts, and by the time that pie was done, I was, I was out. You know, and my wife is a type that will not wake me up if I fell asleep on the couch. She'll leave me there all night. How many know that's just wrong? Wake me up. Get me out of here. I wake up at 11.30, and you know, by that time, when you're this age, you're not eating pie that late, okay? Because, you know, you have a four-pack and a California roll, and it's not going to be good. And you're not going to do that. So, but the next day, I come home from work Monday night. It was a glorious night. Take the pie, cut a piece off. I always microwave it for about 30 seconds. I like it warm. Whipped cream on the side. It was a fantastic night. I looked on Instagram, and I saw my wife's post. And she said, you know, I'm baking a pie for my husband um, because it's been kind of a rough week for him. And I thought, how sweet. But why did Olivia bake that pie for me? Because she loves me. <laughs> did that make you feel warm all inside of me? <laughs> See, that's who Olivia is. Because of who she is, that's what she does. Because Jesus, because of who he is, that's what he does. It's just that simple. He rescued us but he rescued us because of who he is. It's just simple. Now, number three is this. With every rescue, I should say, he rescued us, and the result was there is a rewrite in our life. Now, look at verse 7 through 10. Watch this. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his, say the word, there's grace again. In kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. How many people have had a wrong idea that God is so mean? It says he's kind. Now watch this. There's a big, big point here. Big scripture. For by grace, there it is again. Your, God favors us. We don't deserve it, can't earn it. For by grace you have been saved. That's what God did on the cross. Through faith, our belief in him, our trust in him. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. How many know you are given a gift and you can't work for it, earn it, or purely pay for it, Right? It's just given. God gives us the gift of salvation. You got it, but you've got to take it. But in verse 9, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Now, now here's what it is. You see, every, every religion out there has got this wrong. That's why they're false religions. Because they will tell you that you are saved, you're going to heaven, or whatever their concept is of heaven, an eternal life that is good, it's based on what you do. Based on how many good works you do. The New Testament says, no, you cannot save yourself. You cannot do good works to be saved. Once you are a follower of Christ, 
Now you want to do good works because you have the love of Christ and the mercy of God and the grace of God. In you. So now you want to do good stuff because you're saved. But you're not saved by what you do. So whenever I'm in contact or communicating with somebody that keeps wanting to stress, no, you're saved by what you do, your good deeds. I always ask this. How many good deeds is enough to save me? Is it 100? Is it 275? Is it 4,383? Tell me where the line is so I know I've done enough. So when asked the question, is there really an answer to the question? No way. There is no answer. And if you live in the idea that what you do, if you could do good works to be saved, you'll always be insecure because you'll never know the line. And that's why Jesus comes down to earth because he says, you can't save yourself. One, no good works will never wash away sin. Only my blood, Jesus says. And once I died for you, buried, rose from the dead, and you put your faith in me, man, it's all washed away and you're in right standing. And you've gone from Death Valley to Mount Whitney and you're in right standing with God and when you die, you go to heaven. Any amens on that one right there? I like that a lot. Now watch, here's where we're going to drive it home to. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship. There's our word again, the poem of God. Created in Christ Jesus for good work. You know you're created to do good stuff on this planet for people? That's after you're saved. Now you do good stuff. Which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, let me try to drive this home. Where is workmanship? We're the poem of God. You're God's masterpiece. No, Jim, the other person. No, no, you are too. Every one of you is God's masterpiece, creating the image and likeness of God. And I started thinking about this, and I thought, uh, what makes something a masterpiece here on, on earth? What, how do we do, what is it? And so I read a lot of articles on it, and they said that they've asked a lot of these people, what's a masterpiece? And they all have different answers. There's no one, they don't even know what makes a masterpiece. And then I read different things about where the word masterpiece came from, and it said that way hundreds and hundreds of years ago that when an apprentice was striving and getting better at a certain craft, his artistic craft, that when he had, when he had this, his, 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 quote, exemplary work, like the best work he had, that was called a masterpiece because that apprentice put out his best work. I read another article that said that when a, when a great artist puts out their greatest piece, their greatest work, picture, sculpting, whatever it is, that's a masterpiece. And then I thought, well, God is not an apprentice. God is a master. Any amens? And so when God creates, he creates, every word God creates is exemplary. It's his greatest work. Say amen to that. You are God's greatest work. You are God's greatest creation. You are the masterpiece of God. Am I right? Now, when it comes, if you've ever been to a museum, and you've seen that, you know, when I was younger, I never appreciated museums. I love them now. Don't get to go to them too often, but I really like them. If you ever looked at a masterpiece, a portrait, always as you're staring, always down in one of the corners, what do you find? The signature of the artist. He always puts his name on the masterpiece. Last week, I told you in chapter one that you and I, when we're born again, we are sealed by the Spirit. The word sealed means you're marked. You're signet by the Spirit of God. There's a mark on you that God says, that's my kid. That's mine. Now, there is something that I have believed for 30-some years, and I'm going to share it with you. 
And I believe it strongly with all my heart. And I believe it's a picture in the Old Testament to tell us something about ourselves in the New Testament as followers of Christ. Go to Exodus 28 on the screen, please. We're going to read a few verses. Now, this is God telling Moses, this is going to be the garments of the priest, your brother Aaron. This is what they must wear as they minister. Here it is. This is a piece of all the garments. You shall also make a plate of pure gold and shall engrave on it like the engravings of a seal. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Remember that. On that seal, it says, holy to the Lord. Now watch where he's going to wear it. You shall fasten it on a blue cord and it shall be on the turban. It shall be at the front of the turban. Next verse. It shall be on Aaron's forehead and Aaron shall take away the iniquity of the holy things which the sons of Israel consecrate with regard to all their holy gifts. It shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Now, here's what I believe strongly. The high priest was to wear this thing. The the ropes came down. The little golden plate sat on his forehead. It says, holy to the Lord, right here on the forehead. That's the priest. In the New Testament, Revelation says that every person who's placed their faith in Christ is a kingdom of priests. Did you know you're a priest as a follower of Christ? That means you minister. No, Jim, you're the minister. No, you're all ministers. And if you're not ministering, you're missing out one of the greatest pieces of your life. But on your forehead, and I believe it is what I believe, in the spiritual realm, there's a marking up here. And I think that's why the Antichrist will mark people, one of the reasons, on the forehead. They say they're his. Because God has marked every born-again believer in the spirit realm. He can't see it, but it says holy. See, holy is not what God is. Holy is who God is. You see, it's who God is. And God has placed on every one of his creation, you are holy. Not because you're so special because you get it right or I get it right. Because God is holy. And he's planted that on our forehead. Now, take that thought and think about this. We are God's greatest creation. We are his masterpiece. Holy to the Lord. Must make Satan, just must tick him off, man. To see you in the spirit realm going, there's a holy one right there. Oh, Jesus makes me mad. What do you do? But we are also, remember the poem. We are the workmanship. God's writing the lines of our life as we submit to this word of God. Here's what God, here's what the Spirit dropped in my mind to really press on you. In history, these great works of art, some of them were damaged by people, huh? Vandals. Damaged them. Others were stolen. Did you read just this week one of the greatest jewel heists in the history of the world? In Germany? These were magnificent works of art, these diamonds and jewels, and these said it was magnificent. They got in there and they stole $1.4 billion worth of jewelry. Great works of art. But here's what the Spirit told me to tell you to tell me. You're a great work of art, of God, but there's been some damage. See, we have damaged ourselves. We've vandalized ourselves. Every time we say, 
nah, I'm going to go with my soul, mind, rule, and emotions. Therefore, I'm just going to get it wrong. And I'm going to mess myself up a little bit. And we've done that to ourselves. We've all done, I've done it, you've, we've all done it. So there's some broken pieces. But there's also been some theft of the masterpiece because this is where others have sinned against us. See, somebody in this room, somebody broke your heart and they stole your heart. They made promises, they walked away and they stole your, they broke it. They stole that. They stole your trust. They stole your confidence. They stole your security. They just stole stuff from you. And there's damage there also. And then you come to Christ, as I did, as broken pieces in my life. And then we begin to realize that as I begin to submit myself to what God says, to the power of the Spirit of God, the damage that I've done to myself, the parts of my life that were stolen by others, that God can begin to piece those things back together and write a new poem in my life. Am I making sense to anybody here? That God can do stuff like that. Now, for the believer, follow of Christ, you've got to start living this. You can't operate in the soul anymore only because you're going to get it wrong. That's why you allow yourself and justify your bitterness, unforgiveness, etc., etc., because you're operating in the soul, not the spirit. Does that make sense to anybody here? But if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, understand Jesus was on a cross 2,000 years ago. One guy on one side guy says, one guy says, yeah, I'll follow you. Remember me. The other guy on the other side says, no thanks, Jesus. Not interested in you at all. See, everyone has an, a decision to make. You have your will. Remembering your soul is your will. You've got to make a decision. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to hopefully make a right decision if you're not a follower of Christ. So I'd like you to just close your eyes